Hello, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Gene. This is Jimmy LaSalle. Today, we will dive into the Great Depression and discuss what happened in the aftermath of the stock crash. We will discuss the economic impacts, bank runs. We'll get into the environmental crisis that came up about like the Dust Bowl. We will also discuss social impacts like homelessness, unemployment, food scarcity, and the perseverance of the people of getting through it all. And now, here to tell you about it all is our resident history expert, Jean Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. The Great Depression was the worst economic crisis so far in our nation's history. It lasted from 1929 through 1939, but we really don't come out of the Great Depression until the early 1940s when the war machine to build up for World War II starts to pull us out of this very deep economic crisis. So some historians will argue that it lasted through the mid-1940s. The story of the Great Depression is a story of struggle, but it is also a story of perseverance and resourcefulness. With World War II bringing the country out of the economic collapse, the Great Depression reached its peak in 1933, when you have 15 million Americans who are unemployed. Over 25% of employees were out of work. In states like West Virginia and Pennsylvania, unemployment was as high as 50%. To make a connection to today, if you think about how in March and April of 2020, when COVID caused businesses that were considered unessential to close, that number was under 15% of those employed who now were unemployed. Most of us know someone who was out of work at the height of COVID. Those numbers don't come close to what was experienced in the 1930s. If you listen to our episode on the stock market crash, we discussed the causes. The stock market crash alone didn't cause the Great Depression. Things like overproduction, consumer debt, buying on credit, the fact that banks were uninsured, things like speculation, high protective tariffs, which in turn made our goods more expensive overseas. Conditions were bad across the globe. It was a perfect storm of sorts. Life in the United States during the Great Depression was full of challenges, yet families found ways to survive and to move forward. When you talk about the Great Depression and its political impact, globally, the Great Depression allows for the rise of dictators in a number of countries, most notably Hitler in Germany, Mussolini in Italy, Francisco Franco in Spain, In the United States, you have two very different responses to this economic crisis that eventually becomes known as the Great Depression. When Hoover is president, as opposed to what FDR does when he goes into office, Hoover doesn't believe in big government. He doesn't believe the federal government should be providing direct relief to U.S. citizens. Republicans lose the election. And FDR and the Democrats will maintain control of the federal government until Eisenhower becomes president in 1953. 
FDR famously expanded the role of government with the passing of his proposed New Deal legislation, which we're going to have a whole separate podcast on because there's just too much to talk about. The economic impact of the Great Depression, you have things like bank runs. The economic landscape during the Great Depression was nothing short of devastating. It was a period of immense financial turmoil and really widespread despair. The stock market crash of 1929 sets off these chain of events that led to a sharp decline in production, a decline in income, and of course, in the unemployment rate. Businesses shuttered, factories closed, and banks failed, leaving millions of Americans unemployed and penniless. The unemployment rate skyrocketed to a staggering 25%, leaving families without a means to support themselves. Poverty became a harsh reality for countless individuals, as basic necessities such as food, clothing, shelter, they all become increasingly scarce. Many families were forced to stand in long lines at soup kitchens and bread lines just to get a meal. As jobs disappeared and wages plummeted, the economy spiraled further into chaos. People struggled to pay their bills, resulting in widespread evictions and homelessness. It was a constant battle to find affordable housing, with families often resorting to makeshift dwellings in shanty towns known as Hoovervilles. As people were evicted from their apartments or homes due to unemployment and failure to pay their bills, shanty towns started to spring up across the United States. People built structures from stone, from cardboard, even metal scraps. They were often located not too far from those free soup kitchens I mentioned. And the most famous Hooverville was on the Great Lawn of Central Park in New York City. And if you go to rarehistoricalphotos.com, they have an abundance of images of different Hoovervilles across the nation and the shanty towns that existed. So definitely go take a look. Hey, question. How does this compare to some of the homelessness that we see today in some of the bigger cities across the country, certainly with the migrants coming in and everything else? How would you compare that to the Great Depression? Well, you can compare it to the fact that you, you see people living rough on the streets, right? So, you know, you go to cities like San Francisco, for example, where in various parts of California, where the weather isn't as doesn't really get too harsh. You see people living out on the streets all year long in places that, you know, get colder, like where we live. You know, you see people, you know, in the colder months going into homeless shelters, but you'll see tents on beaches, you'll see tents in parks, and you see people living out on the streets. Now, people are homeless for a multitude of reasons, right? It's lack of job, sometimes it's mental illness, sometimes it's drug abuse, alcohol abuse, sometimes it's people who are living out on the streets because their parents have kicked them out. There's a you know, significant LGBTQ population uh, who are homeless. You have migrants who are coming into the country and there's just not enough room for them in centers. And so, you know, in places, cities like New York, they're camping outside of hotels that they're waiting to be processed and to, and to get a room. So, you know, people see homelessness today. And I think it's different from what we saw in the 1930s because everybody was really having a hard time. 
you know, most people today have a roof over their heads, thank goodness. But in the 1930s, in the early 1940s, people who never had an issue are suddenly having an issue. But despite these dire circumstances, Americans found innovative ways to make ends meet. Some turned to odd jobs or to day laborers, while others bartered and traded goods to acquire what they needed. Now, I mentioned bank runs earlier, and those bank runs eventually caused a number of banks to close their doors. The banks, in essence, went bankrupt. The interesting thing is that at the start of the Great Depression, the majority of Americans don't have savings accounts, which is another problem altogether. Those who did have their money in the bank wanted to withdraw it. The problem is, is, you know, when you put your money in the bank, it doesn't go into a draw with your name on it, waiting for you to come back and do something with it. It goes to give loans to other people for a mortgage, for a business loan, for an investment. As more and more people took their money out of the banks, the bank had no more money to give out and they closed. Banks were not insured. So if you had a savings account, your money was gone. Yeah. So recently, um, you take the example of Silicon Valley Bank, where in a period of a couple of days in March 2023, the bank went from solvent to broke as depositors rushed in uh, to withdraw their funds, resulting in regulators closing the bank on March 10th. SVB's collapse marked the second largest bank failure in U.S. history after Washington Mutuals in 2008. So this is still going on. Um, now you have the FDIC insurance, but that only protects you up to, what is it now, $250,000? $250,000. Now you can have multiple bank accounts and they will all be insured, but anything over 250000 in that specific account is not going to be insured. Well, you would need to have multiple bank accounts at multiple banks. If Correct. you had three accounts in one bank for, let's say, 250, 250, 250, you would only be covered for the first 250. At that particular bank, yeah. At that particular bank. So spread it around a little bit if need be. <laughs> yes. Be smart with your money. So when banks closed, the government, when FDR comes to office, kind of declares something called a bank holiday. So these Bank holidays or closures for multiple days tried to calm the storm, but that it only caused further panic. You know, why are they closing the banks? Notices on locked bank doors often stated closed by the board of directors until further notice. Many of those banks were never reopened. So to top it all off, homes are being foreclosed. People are being evicted from apartments, fired from their job. By 1933, 28 states don't have an open bank. After Roosevelt's inauguration in March of 1933, he declared an eight-day long bank holiday. During this time, banks were closed and the Emergency Banking Act was passed. The act created what we call today the FDIC, which Jim and I spoke about briefly just before, which at the time insured bank accounts up to $2,500. And FDIC stands for the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And today it'll insure accounts up to $250,000. But when it was first created, it was $2,500 and it's gone up over the years. The act also mandated that banks had to be inspected in order to ensure their financial stability. Healthy banks could reopen 
those were banks that were financially stable and banks that weren't financially stable had to remain closed. And this helped to boost confidence in American banks because when those banks, those healthy banks reopened, people knew that they were financially stable and they could put their money in and it would be insured. In the early 1930s, you also have the worst environmental crisis in history that takes place. The farming land of the Great Plains was once very fertile, but overfarming coupled with drought and the loss of topsoil ruined the land. You couple this with years of minimal rainfall, all of these things contributed to a massive dust storm. In April of 1935, the biggest dust storm ever recorded starts to travel across the Great Plains. You have winds up to 65 miles per hour, hundreds of miles wide, carrying tons and tons of topsoil. April 14, 1935, becomes known as Black Sunday. People's lungs were filled with sand and topsoil. The storm was so strong that dust clouds even covered New York City by May of 1935. The area of the Great Plains becomes known as the Dust Bowl. Some of you may have heard that term before. Many people fled that area. Roughly 2.5 million people left the Dust Bowl states. We're talking states like Texas, New Mexico, Colorado, Nebraska, and Kansas. Many of them moved to California and were often nicknamed Okies. And if you've ever read Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck, that's about the Dust Bowl. There are phenomenal images that exist today of life in the Dust Bowl from the work of, her, of uh, the famous photographer Dorothea Lange. Now, the social impact of the Great Depression. During the Great Depression, food scarcity and hunger were pervasive issues that plagued the lives of countless Americans with unemployment at an all-time high, poverty widespread. Putting food on the table became a daily struggle for many families, some people in families not eating at all on some days so that other people in the family could eat. As job opportunities dwindled, so did the means to afford basic necessities like groceries. Families were forced to make do with whatever scraps they could find or afford. Meals became simple and sparse, often consisting of inexpensive staples like bread, potatoes, and beans. Nutritious options were often a luxury many couldn't afford. Food scarcity led to the rise of soup kitchens and bread lines where individuals and families could receive you know, a modest meal. These communal efforts provided a glimmer of hope in an otherwise very, very bleak situation. Charitable organizations and churches, they also play a vital role in ensuring that people didn't go too hungry. Offering support and sustenance to those in need. Many cities simply didn't have the funding or the resources to adequately respond to this economic crisis. As unemployment rose, churches, religious organizations, and charities, they opened up soup kitchens to feed the masses. Just about every major city had a soup kitchen, even the famous or infamous Al Capone, the gangster, opened up one in Chicago in order to help boost his image. Some soup kitchens fed anywhere from 1,000 to 3,000 people a day. Additionally, some families turned to their own resourcefulness to combat food scarcity. You have urban gardens, backyard chicken coops. The, you know Those things became increasingly popular, and they allowed families to grow their own fruits, vegetables, and eggs. 
community gardens also emerged, providing, you know, in a sense, a collaborative space for neighbors to cultivate their own food. Hardest hit families sometimes took turns eating, which I mentioned earlier. Heating your home also became difficult. Wooden or coal stoves would be used to heat maybe one or two rooms in the home. And if wood or coal was scarce, people actually used uh, corn cobs they had saved up from a previous night's dinner. So people became pretty resourceful. Mm. The Great Depression brought about numerous housing challenges for the American people. With unemployment rates skyrocketing and poverty widespread, finding affordable and stable housing became you know, a struggle for people. As families lost their jobs and income, they couldn't pay their rent or their mortgage. So they were evicted. They are now they're homeless. So yes, you have people living in Hoovervilles and shanty towns, but you also have people sharing apartments. You know, some families, they band together, they share housing, they pool their resources, and that provided them a sense of security. So you have multiple families living in small apartments or houses, small apartments or houses, and squeezing in as many people as possible. And now, you know, this arrangement is far from ideal, but it allows families to have a roof over their head and and support one of you know support each other through these tough times. The government also begins to introduce various housing programs as part of you know New Deal initiatives. These programs. You know, they aim to provide affordable housing for low-income individuals and families. And the goal is to stimulate the construction industry and to create jobs. And this helped to alleviate some of the housing challenges faced by Americans during the Great Depression. The 1930s, if, if you're going to think of anything when you think of the 1930s, you have to think about simplicity and thrift. Clothes were mended before being replaced. The invention of synthetic fibers led to the use of washable and easy care fabrics. Shoes are mended. Sometimes people used um, old rubber from worn out tires to replace the soles of their shoes. You couldn't afford to buy new shoes. Many who could not afford books or, or newspapers, they often went to libraries to read. Inexpensive forms of entertainment, things like backyard games, puzzles, card games, board games, Board games like Sorry and Monopoly, they all come out in the 1930s and they all become very popular. If you listen to our podcast on, um, you know, big business, the original name of Monopoly was called the Landlord Game. Look it up. Mm -hmm. You have famous singers, you know, Bing Crosby, for example, he's singing songs, you know, titled Just Remember That Sunshine Always Follows the Rain or, you know, brother, can you spare a dime? So when you talk about pop culture of the 1930s, the music that's being created, created is very reflective of the way that people are living. Certain foods and recipes become popular during the Great Depression. For example, oxtail soup or stew gained popularity. Household brands you've probably heard of and have eaten gained popularity during the 1930s. Campbell's soup Campbell's soup was so inexpensive and it was easy to, to cook and to serve it. Campbell's at the time had five different flavors. Uh, you had tomato, you had chicken, oxtail. Remember I mentioned oxtail uh, soup or stew, vegetable and consomme. Today, of course, there's many more varieties of Campbell's. No soup um, for you. No soup for you. 
Kraft macaroni and cheese. I'm sure you've heard of it. That becomes popular. Ritz crackers, another brand that becomes popular during the Great Depression. And, you know, sometimes people make Great Depression meals today. Meatloaf, for example, succotash, uh, dandelion salad. I don't know if you've had, I I have had dandelion salad. It's actually delicious. You don't eat the flowers. You just eat uh, the leaves, but dandelion leaves are a little bitter, um, but it's, it's a delicious green vinegar pie. Also popular. Does that go with the dandelion salad, the vinegar pie? (laughs) I wouldn't eat vinegar pie with dandelion salad. Dandelion salad is bitter enough. And something called depression cake. And if you have any interest in making any of those recipes, a quick, you know, Google search will pop right up and you can make them. What's depression cake? Well, it was chocolate cake, but it doesn't have all the bells and whistles. You know, you have to have flour, you need sugar, baking soda, cocoa powder, but you used vinegar and you used vegetable oil. So it didn't, it didn't require dairy. So you weren't using eggs, you weren't using milk. So all, you know, those more expensive grocery items that most people couldn't afford, you didn't use. So I'd imagine just, it wouldn't taste as rich, but it would still be sweet. It's actually pretty good. It Mm -hmm. is pretty good. So if you're interested in making depression cake, Google up yourself the the recipe and you can uh, enjoy yourself a piece of historical nostalgia. Mm. During the Great Depression, the United States government recognized the urgent need for intervention and they implement a series of policies known as the New Deal. These policies aimed to provide what what you'll hear history teachers often refer to as the three R's, relief, reform, recovery. And they hoped that relief, reform, recovery would help the struggling economy and the American people. One of the most significant aspects of the New Deal was the creation of these programs or agencies that were designed to create jobs And those new jobs would stimulate economic growth. So you have things like the CCC, which is the Civilian Conservation Corps. The Civilian Conservation Corps provided employment opportunities for young men in environmental conservation projects, planting trees, for example. And we're going to talk more about the CCC on our New Deal episode. So be on the lookout for that. We have a program the, the New Deal has a program known as the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, that funded infrastructure projects and employed millions of workers in a number of industries. The New Deal also sought to stabilize the banking system and restore confidence in the economy that way. We talked about the FDIC, which was established to ensure bank deposits and prevent future bank failures. You have the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and that was created to regulate the stock market and to prevent fraud, all that speculation that led to the stock market crash. In addition to those economic measures, the New Deal also included social welfare programs in order to assist those in need. So you have things like the SSA, otherwise known as the Social Security Act. Today, people will simply refer to it as Social Security. That provided financial assistance to the elderly, to the disabled, and to the unemployed. Then you have FHA, which is the Federal Housing Administration. FHA still exists today, just like Social Security, just like the SEC, just like the FDIC. FHA 
aimed to promote affordable housing and home ownership. And this program was especially important as people defaulted on their loans and lost their homes due to foreclosure. And all of those things helped to regulate the interest of home loans. Prior to this, mortgages were only five or 10 years long, and it often required a huge down payment that most people couldn't afford. So, Well, houses were not as expensive as they were no, as they are today. But people were but it was also all relative not to what they were earning, right? A large salary. No. Like if you think about what most, you know, of our generation today, what what our parents paid for their houses, you th- you say, "Oh, I wish." But their salary was $4,000 a year, you know? So right. a $70,000 house, you know, still seems steep when you look at it from that perspective. While those new deal policies, they're they're certainly not a cure-all for the Great Depression. They do provide much needed relief and also hope for millions of Americans. But we're going to go more into the New Deal and some of its programs on a separate podcast. That generation that lived through World War One, lived through the Great Depression, and then right, and boom, that's what that's why our World grandparents and great aunts and uncles who you know they were all in World War War Two. They always said, save your money, save your money. You never yeah, know the when mentality, you're going to need it. The mentality, mm-hmm. and nothing went to waste. I remember my, you know, grandma washing her face in a basin with, you know, she'd fill up this basin of water in the sink. You didn't let the water run. You filled up water in the basin. She would wash her face in the morning. So, you know, obviously there's no makeup in this water, but she'd wash her face and then she'd use that same soapy water and she'd like wash the floors with it. And then she'd pour it outside and rinse off the steps. So all of these things are, everything's being reused. The habits, you know, the habits that yes. were formed then. I, yeah. I get a hole in a pair of socks that goes in the garbage. I'm not mending that sock. And people did those things. You know, we cut off crust, you know, the crusts of bread for our kids without giving it a second thought. That wouldn't be done during that time. And, you know, you think of the habits that people created during COVID in order to survive that particular time period. You know, there's certain food items, certain things that I'm, I'm going to be weird about having a lot of for a while, you know? And so when you live through something like the Great Depression, it changes your perspective. And most young people today, they don't know people who lived through the Great Depression, you know, whereas our generation does. This was our, our grandparents. Mm-hmm. And it kind of opens your eyes into how they lived and why they lived that way, why they had that frugal sense, you know, how they could, you know, you open up your refrigerator and you're like, oh, I have nothing to eat. But, I, you know, they could open up that refrigerator and see a huge meal. You know, it's a big difference. Absolutely, Gene. I agree with you. Well, that will end our podcast on the Great Depression. Tell a friend something you learned here and tell them where you heard it. Follow us on social media, register for our email blasts, our history happy hours, and more. Thanks for listening. There is always more to learn. Talk to you soon.